Hello, hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Stimulus Podcast. My name is Rob Orman, and for those of you new to the show, I'm a 20-year veteran of the emergency department and now coach clinicians in all stages of their careers. What we do on this podcast is break down ideas, strategies, tactics, habits, mindsets to help you work through feeling burnt and stuck. But it's not just working through the negative. It's helping you thrive in your career, excel in leadership, and feel that you are kicking ass in work and life. You know, things like getting home on time, feeling psyched about going into work. When was the last time you felt that way? Don't just suck it up. Think differently. If you want to learn more about what we do and chat about working together with one-on-one coaching, you can contact me through my website, roborman.com. All right, our last newsletter, the one that came out about a week ago, holy smokes, appreciate all of the responses from that, all of you who reached out. So Dr. JR, who discussed it at the dinner table with his kids, much props, Dr. BB, who forwarded on to his nephew, who is a teacher. Oh, I love it. And for those of you who wonder why Dr. BB would have sent it to his nephew, the teacher, well, the last newsletter was titled, what the kids who hated math have to teach us. Alas, now that mystery is solved. If you want to dip your toes into the newsletter, here's a few things I can tell you. I only put one out when I have something to say. It is not spammy. I really dislike my inbox being constipated, and I don't want to constipate your inbox. I mean, really, who wants to be known as a cause of constipation? Let's not even go there. If you have interest in checking out our mailing list, exploring it a bit, there's a couple of ways to get on it, to get on the list, to get the newsletter. And by the numbers, about a quarter of listeners, I would estimate, are already on the list. So this might be old news to you, but if it's not, the two ways to do it are on the landing page on robwarman.com. You scroll down about an inch or a couple centimeters, and there's a newsletter sign up, done, mischief managed. And the other way is if you download any one of our freebies, our documentation templates, scripting your least favorite conversations, a quick and dirty guide to calling consults, you'll have the opportunity to be on our mailing list. But let me make it clear that you can and absolutely should opt out if you don't want to be on it. Why am I belaboring this point about the newsletter? Well, I want to be able to have a direct connection with you if you're interested in that. So for example, what that means is we're going to have a live event next May, May 2024, and it's going to be announced through the newsletter first before we announce it on the show or in social media. But then there's other things to say that don't really fit on a podcast that I think will help you level up and elevate you in your career. Enough said. There will be some links in the show notes to all that gravy, let you access a newsletter if you want to check it out. On today's show, Dr. Gail Gazelle. This is Gail's second appearance on Stimulus, and her first was way back in 2020 in episode 27. Gail is a fellow physician coach and just a fount of wisdom, which I think you're going to pick up on in this pod. And in this episode, we focus quite a bit on her new book, Mindful MD, Six Ways Mindfulness Restores Your Autonomy and Cures Healthcare Burnout. That's kind of going to be the 
fulcrum around which we converse. But we're also going to get into imposter syndrome, thinking small, the trap of being told you're special. Not that you're not special, but there's a trap of being told you're special. Oh, what are we going to do about it? We'll see. We'll see in the conversation. Talk about growing up in the gauntlet of competition, scarcity mindset, and what the simple act of noticing what's going on in your mind can lead to a cascade of personal transformation. And on this topic of mindfulness, I know some of you are well experienced in it and are experienced meditators. Some of you may be meditation teachers. Some have dabbled in mindfulness. Some have never tried it or don't meditate at all. And it doesn't even have to be meditation as we'll get into. You know, all that is fine. It doesn't matter what level you're starting at. There's going to be something in here for everybody. And to that point, in this pod, Gail speaks directly to physicians. But if you're not a physician, that's okay. You can just substitute whatever your job title is, and the overwhelming chances are that this is all going to apply to you as well. And let me just set things up so that we're all starting off on the same page. What is mindfulness? You hear that term bandied about a lot. You know, we're, we're of course going to talk about it in the pod, but one of the best descriptions I've read was by Jan Chosen Bays, who is a pediatrician and Zen teacher in Oregon, who put it this way. Mindfulness is deliberately paying full attention to what's happening around you and within you, your body, your heart, your mind. Mindfulness is awareness without criticism or judgment. It is so simple, yet there are so many layers to it. And the evidence is quite convincing. I know that you love the evidence. How can you not? It's quite convincing that mindfulness practice can improve a sense of well-being. But also, when we're talking about operating in very stressful environments, as I know many of you do, a practice of mindfulness has been shown to decrease cortisol levels as well as other stress hormones. So on that note, let's get to it. Our discussion with Dr. Gail Gazelle. Well, let's start out with the why of this. There are thousands of books on mindfulness. Why did this one need to be written? I wrote this book because we all know we're in hard times in healthcare. 50, 60% of docs burnt out in every specialty. The other 50%, well, it's almost like divorce rates of 50%. You know, the other half aren't exactly doing great. And we work so incredibly hard to get into our careers, right? We sacrifice so much. We do so much good. And yet, when we're in our careers, it's really hard to thrive. We all know that. The, the, the deck is kind of stacked against us in the modern mess of healthcare in the US and really in so many countries. And what the book is about is really sharing what I've learned from hundreds of physicians that I've had the pleasure of coaching over the last 12 years and the tools that they've learned to thrive despite what's going on in healthcare. That's what this is really about because I've seen the power that mindfulness approaches have to be a game changer for physicians. It helps us focus on what we can control. It helps us be the master of our mind rather than the captive. It helps us step out of all kinds of stories that really derail us. So that's what I'm excited to talk about today, because this book is not about sitting and meditating. It's really about much more than that. Well, let's talk about sitting and meditating first, because that is, I think, one of the most easily accessible methods to practice mindfulness. Not that you can't do it throughout your day, and actually that's the skill in the end. And to that point, 
I was talking with a physician friend of mine yesterday who had started meditating a month ago. He said, I don't think I'm doing it right. My mind is just so busy. I'm not a good meditator. I'm not good at meditating because I can't calm my mind. I can't quiet my mind, right? Like that's the refrain when you start. So common. The human mind is an incredibly busy place. We produce, you know, 10 to 20,000 thoughts a day. And I think for physicians, it's probably closer to 50,000. And meditation is not about banishing thought. It's about working with the mind, getting to know the mind. Why? So that we can train the mind to focus where we want to focus. And for most of us physicians, it's almost as if we've got 75 tabs open, you know, in the computer of our mind. That's a great metaphor. We don't learn how to close them. Yeah. And so with mindfulness, what's really wonderful about it, certainly what I found myself, is that you start gaining the ability to actually close them and open the tabs when you want to open them. So when you get home and you're after your busy shift or at the end of your day and your mind is just going a thousand miles a minute and you can't actually sit comfortably with your spouse and kids and you're so distracted, this is what mindfulness is about. Yes, on the cushion, the meditation piece of it, which helps to build more mindfulness, but much more importantly, off the cushion. In all the moments of your busy day at work, at home, by yourself, whatever it is, so that you can really have some control over what's going on in this instrument that we all use all of our waking hours. And even while we're asleep, guess what? The mind. You get someone rolling with their mindfulness practice or meditation practice, or, or even the experience of what mindfulness feels like. Let me just start by saying one of the six ways that we can restore our autonomy and cure our own and others' burnout is first and foremost by recognizing that we are not our thoughts. And I think that's really important. Before we even get into meditation, we've got to help people understand what's going on in their own mind to help them see what's in it for them to begin a meditation practice. So let me just give you an example that I have in the book, a physician that I call Mira an emergency physician, busy shifts, busy life, family, teenagers, aging parents, the whole deal. She told me, you know, I just can't take it anymore. It's so busy. My days are so busy. I come home. I want to be there for my kids. But honestly, I'm just reviewing cases and I'm thinking about my charts and I'm thinking about the next shift. The alarm goes off at 530 and I start thinking to myself, what a slug I am. I should be getting up and going on the Peloton, but I'm not. Other doctors know how to do this. They know how to have balance in their lives, but there's something wrong with me. Then I'm having breakfast with my girls and my mind is going a mile a minute. I'm thinking that they're not doing their homework and they're not going to get into the right college and I'm worrying that maybe they need a tutor. Then I get in the car and I'm driving to work and I'm thinking about everything. I'm thinking about an argument that I had last night with my spouse. I'm thinking about the difficult shift I'm going to have in our understaffed emergency room. My mind is going a million miles a minute. And then I get to work And guess what? It's hard to actually focus on the patients that I'm seeing because my mind is telling me about the last patient. They're telling me, what if I get sued? My mind is telling me all kinds of things. And so for a client like that, we've got to promote the awareness. What is going on in my mind? Because while Mira and so many other physicians feel burnt out and feel like they can't handle the stresses of their careers, which are there and are very real and mighty, We have to help our colleagues understand that on top of that is the wear and tear of what's going on in our own minds. And that combination 
is lethal. And it is a setup for burnout. So I think we have to do that to kind of get buy into this whole meditation idea, this whole mindfulness idea, because otherwise it's just like, you're just telling me to go meditate. What good is that possibly going to do? That's the first part of my answer. The second part is there are a lot of apps there and they're great. At the end of the day, whatever app works for you, that's really what's key here. If you like the person's voice, use that. If you'd rather sit in silence, use that. If you have a community to go meditate with, do that. There are a lot of different pathways to develop this very important skill to help quiet our busy minds. If you are new to this and have never dabbled in mindfulness or meditation before, or have tried it and said, ah, yeah, I, I just can't get going, or maybe I'm not good at it, which is not true for anybody, we have a whole episode on meditation and mindfulness that I will link to in the show notes. It's episode 38, to interview with a master meditation and mindfulness teacher with tips on how to get started, how to keep your practice sticky, how to make it work for you. We personally, in the Orman household, use the Waking Up app as well as the 10% Happier app. No official endorsement there. We've just found that those are the ones that we like and work for us. All of these things are just kind of variations on a theme. It's just whatever connects with you, whatever you vibe with. And you know what? Experiment. There's free trials for all of them. And let me know. It ends up working for you. I want to dig in a little deeper to a few things that you said in there. Awareness what you are doing with this practice, becoming aware of that inner dialogue, gaining insight into that inner dialogue, right? It's called insight meditation, some of the practices. And you said something that is so important, but I want to give people a little bit of grace with it as well, that you are not your thoughts, but sometimes you can become fused with your thoughts. And the awareness can expand that space between stimulus and response. And it can give you a little bit of psychological distance and allow you to look more discerningly than judgmentally at those thoughts or at yourself. But sometimes you are kind of overtaken by it all. It's just so much that even just awareness isn't enough. My amygdala is firing. I just, I got the cortisol surge. I got to, you know, maybe do some breath work or just, or, or just give it time, right? Sometimes it just takes, takes time for these things to defuse yourself with this emotion. I don't know. I don't know if that's so much a question, but just as you're saying that, I was like, oh yeah, there is sort of like this a side of the bell curve that as you were describing the doc going into work and just being bombarded with all the stuff, it's like, yeah, you know what? Sometimes you are overtaken by it all. There's a couple of things that come to mind. There's an analogy that I share in the book that may be helpful. And it's really, if you think about a waterfall, a beautiful waterfall, if you bring one to mind right now, that without mindfulness, it's as if we're standing underneath the waterfall of the thinking mind. And the mind is just spewing out thought after thought about thought, you know, tens of thousands of thoughts a day, crazy number of thoughts. And without mindful training, or the training that mindfulness provides, it really is if we are standing under that waterfall. And yet, if we can step aside and view the waterfall from some distance, in other words, become the observer, as you said, Rob, get some space between the thought and the thinker, we can observe it. And one, we can see it for what it is. 
rather than being so drenched and drowning underneath in it that we're trapped in it. And two, we can begin to realize that we have some choices. We begin to see that we have a choice. Yes, I can attach to those thoughts. I can let them carry me away wherever that is, whatever dark alley my mind is taking me down, let's say around being an imposter, for example, which is actually just a thought process. Or I have the choice to say to myself, you know, I'm going to let that thought just pass through the open sky of my mind, and I don't have to attach to it. And the, the level of freedom and autonomy that we experience when we can step out of the waterfall and be the observer is really powerful. And that, I think, if there's nothing else that your listeners take away, I want them to take that away, that you don't have to be trapped under the waterfall. We don't learn that skill in our training. It's really quite almost criminal that we don't <laughs> because it's so freeing and there's so much autonomy in actually developing that mastery over our minds. That's what's possible here. And in addition to all the stresses in healthcare, all the miseries, all that's broken that we all know about all too well, it's this added layer that really just drags us under. What is the fundamental practice of mindfulness, what it looks like? It's about being aware of what the mind is up to, noticing when thoughts are occurring, when emotions are occurring, when physical sensations are occurring, and realizing that you have a choice. So much of mindfulness is about moments of choice. Actually, the thousands of moments of choice that we have in all of our waking hours, and in any one day, we have thousands. And we don't always notice them. We don't always pause to notice them. But that's fundamentally what mindfulness is about. It's that noticing, that very intentional awareness in the service of directing our mind where we want our mind to be. And I think that's so important for physicians in particular, because I almost think about it like making a diagnosis wrong. We're diagnosing what our mind is up to in that particular moment. And we have to diagnose before we intervene, right? We have to diagnose before we treat. So that's what the awareness of mindfulness is all about, diagnosing. What's my mind going on and isn't helping me? And if it isn't, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to treat my own mind just like I treat patients. And the treatment is refocusing somewhere else or taking a pause or using some tools that I'm sure we'll talk about to, to work on patterns of emotional reactivity. So much of the, the process of mindfulness, you know, sometimes called kettlebells for the brain, the move is, or a move is, you are sitting with a meditation object and focusing on it. Your breath would be the most common, focusing on how the breath goes and a thought comes up and you note it, thought, and then come back to the object. And that's the move, which is why our friend in the beginning who said, I'm not good at meditating, is like, no, actually that you notice that, that is the win. You're winning at meditation. <laughs> So there is the first step, is the, is the awareness of it. And then there is this even bigger world, which is acceptance. And my all-time favorite quote is that this moment is just as it is. That whatever is happening in this moment is what's happening in this moment, and we accept it. Not that we won't be vehicles and champions of change. But right now, what's happening is what's happening. And it can seem like a leap of, okay, I'm aware. I, I got it. 
got it. I'm aware of what's happening. Where are all these thoughts? Where are the inner dialogue? I'm where I'm not my thoughts. How do I accept it? How do I make it so that there is no struggle? This is a really pertinent question, Rob, for where we are with this epidemic of physician burnout. I've coached so many physicians who basically say to me, I can't stand the practice of medicine the way it is today. This is unfair. I did not go into my medical training to sit in front of a computer and to see these crazy number of patients, to be sitting on the phone, haggling with insurance companies. I can't stand it. And they tell me that there's almost smoke coming out of their ears when they sit down to chart, for example, because we didn't go into medical school to sit in front of a computer and nourish the EMR, right? And so what's interesting is that those patterns of emotional reactivity, that not accepting reality, arguing with reality, one, cause loss of energy due to all of that emotional reactivity. Two, make it harder for us to actually engage in meaningful conversations with the bean counters, with the non-clinician administrators who rule the healthcare roost. They actually make it harder for us to be skillful and make our case of why we're seeing too many patients, why we need a scribe, why we need more MAs, whatever it is that we're so upset about, of which there is a great deal to be upset about. So acceptance, I find, it's almost, it's acceptance because what we resist persists. Carl Jung helped us understand that, and it is incredibly true. The more we resist getting our charts done, guess what? The harder it is to get them done. And also, I want everybody listening to your podcast to be really skillful in helping non-clinician administrators understand their needs and the needs of their patients. And yet, when we're feeling that emotional, it's very hard to make any kind of compelling case because our anger and our frustration and our annoyance gets in our way. So it's acceptance, in a sense, I hate to say it this way, but it actually helps us achieve our ends. It also helps us be calmer in the moment. Work with what is. How many times, Rob, have you had the thought, well, I'll be happy when, fill in the blank, when X happens, when I go on a vacation, when my spouse is nicer to me, when my teenager doesn't yell at me, when they don't push <laughs> me so hard in the emergency room. And equally, I can't be happy unless. So if you think about it, you know, you're an undergrad. Well, I'll be happy when I get into med school. You're in med school. Oh, I'll be happy when I get the right residency. You're a resident. Oh, yeah. Once I get that fellowship. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be happy then. Life is going to be great. Then you get to be an attending. Oh, and I'm an attending. Things are going to be wonderful. Now, any attendings listening to this, you know, it is not exactly easy being an attending. And then many attendings. I'll be happy when I retire and I got out of this mess. And instead of kind of accepting where things are and working with what is and not handing your happiness over to a highly dysfunctional healthcare system, you're kind of putting this pause. And it's like you get to the end of your life. Well, wait a minute. I didn't stop to be happy. I didn't stop to enjoy what I had. And I think that's another example that helps sort of demystify this idea. What are you just asking me to be some kind of dish rag and just accept, you know, like our doorstep or whatever the term is, and just accept all this bad stuff in healthcare? You got to be kidding. 
But really what we're looking at is what's the cost to you of not accepting reality? Like that's really where the rubber meets the road, right? For any of us, what's the cost to us of having all of this emotional reactivity? Because it's costly. It drains us. You need all of your energy to take care of yourself so you can get through the marathon of your career. That's what a lot of mindfulness is about. I want to break in here for a moment and just take a beat on this idea because the concept we've been talking about is a seeming paradox and a frequent source of frustration when we're talking about mindfulness or when somebody starts a mindfulness practice or when these ideas are presented. With the practice of mindfulness, we are practicing awareness without criticism or judgment. Awareness without criticism or judgment leads to acceptance. As Gail just said, this can help turn down the volume of our emotional reactivity and promote equanimity. The trouble or confusion often comes when this gets conflated with situations that would often be construed as challenging, like you're in the middle of a shift and there's just too many patients to see, you can't get anyone admitted, no hospitals are taking any transfers, it feels like a whirlwind, the system is broken, you're a cog in the machinery and whew, there's a difference between awareness of our own inner dialogue and accepting the situation and accepting that and awareness of these external events and doing nothing about them. Just rolling over and saying, yeah, you know, I guess I just have to accept it. That's what this is all about. That's not what this is about. These are two different types of acceptance. One is awareness and acceptance of what is happening at the present. The other type of acceptance is more of an acquiescence. Just because you are paying full attention to what is happening around you and within you and are aware of it without criticism or judgment does not mean that you can't be a vehicle for change. In fact, awareness and acceptance of what's within you and around you makes it easier for you to become a vehicle for change. When you were talking before about all these things sucking the soul and the admins suck. I don't have any agency here. Oh, what do they need? As that was a note I took down when, when you're saying all that. So why don't you ask them, what are their metrics? I have found there are a few things that are 100%, but I have found with 100% of clients, when that question comes out, number one, there's a light bulb. And number two, when they go to the CMO or to the admin, the relationship immediately changes. We can get into this us versus them. Yeah. We do a lot of that. And it's, it's unfortunate because it's kind of a zero-sum game. And yet, if we can ask ourselves, well, how does this look from the other person's lens? And that is not just your administrator. That could be your spouse. That could be your parent. That yeah. could be a colleague or a friend or you know anybody in your community it can really help us understand that they're struggling too. We all struggle. This journey of life, none of us get through it without struggling. Small, large, in this domain, in that domain, an illness, a difficult job, a difficult boss, accidents, financial difficulties. This is what life is about. But when we can imagine what's going on for that other person, well, it's a lot easier to work with that person and think about a win-win. And that is so important for us as we struggle with this crazy healthcare system that we're in. What's going on for this other person? How can I talk to them in a way that actually makes sense to them? Because maybe we can come up with a solution and maybe 
I can feel better about myself because I didn't lash out in anger, but I actually used my nice professional stance, which I'm very good at with patients, and I can feel good about how I interacted with that, with that administrator, and maybe we'll get to a better solution. When you had said before, an if and, I will be happy when, I will yeah. be... Okay, so that, I think, is... I think that must just be a natural way that our minds work, that, you know, we, we, we have this basically, it's, it's dependent on this future external thing, whatever, whatever it is I'm working for. And we have this, this was described so well in the book, 4,000 weeks. We have this sense that we're always working towards something. There's something in the future that where we are now isn't quite it. We're never quite there. But this is it. This is it. This moment is it. Well, here's something really funny, Rob. I, I had a tweet yesterday or the day before that got almost 5,000 likes. I've never had a tweet that got 5,000 <laughs> likes. And the tweet was about this exact phenomenon, the I'll be happy when. And it was directed toward physicians, undergrads, yeah. med school, med school residency. I think there were, in the 700 retweets and the crazy number of comments, people said, well, what do you think? That's just physicians? You know, I'm a lawyer and I experienced <laughs> that. You know, I'm a college yeah. dropout and I experienced that. I'm a nurse and I experienced it. So it is the human condition. And yet, with a mindful approach, we can really begin to notice when our mind is going down that path of, well, I can't be happy now. Who could be? Given, you know, the the way healthcare is going, for example, we can notice that and we can ask ourselves, how is that thought serving me? How am I feeling when I have that thought? I know when I have those kind of thoughts, I don't feel very good because it really, that thought reinforces that there's something wrong right now and there's something that has to change for me to be okay. So once we get to know, well, how that feels to us, we're more motivated to work with our kind of tricky kind of wild mind in a sense, kind of crazy mind, mine anyway, we're more motivated to work with it and realize that we don't have to go along for the ride. We don't have to follow these thoughts that are grossly unhelpful, that are draining us, that are keeping us out of the moments in our lives. We have a choice. That's an autonomy that we can have no matter what external autonomy is taken from us. And it is no small thing to regain that autonomy. I want to talk about a trap of, I'd say, high-level performers and are very achievement-focused have been told, or at least have been tacitly told, that they are special. You write about that trap in your book. Why is that a trap? Well, I think a lot of us physicians suffer from the special syndrome. After all, you know, from a young age, we're academically gifted. We're good at getting good grades. And we start getting a lot of external reinforcement for that from teachers, from parents, from siblings, from our peers, etc. And we start building an identity around this special thing, the special quality that we have. Unfortunately, you know, the harder they come, the harder they fall. <laughs> Jimmy Cliff pointed that out and others have as well, that it sets us up for a lot of difficulties. I share in the book 
a motif of being on a plane a number of years ago and starting a conversation with, you know, a well-coiffed kind of professional looking woman who was sitting next to me working on her laptop. And I recall turning to her and starting a conversation. And then at some point I said, oh, so what do you do for a living? And here's the thing, Rob, I noticed in that moment that I actually didn't really care what she did. I was waiting for an opening to tell her that I was a physician, that I was special, that I was Dr. Gazelle. And that was such a moment of mindful awareness for me because I didn't really realize how much I was carrying that around. And furthermore, you know, what kind of person, like you're thinking about her talking to this person, me, who's off in my own land of having to prove to her how great I am. (laughs) Follow that into your other relationships where you're kind of carrying this thing. You're at a dinner party. Well, I'm Dr. Gazelle. You know, and I'm really owning this myself because when I've shared this story, people have said, yeah, I felt that too. And then it makes us difficult to appreciate what others are doing well. So I also share in the book a physician who shared with me, you know, we were understaffed. We needed to hire a new doc in our department, but I was I was so afraid that she was going to upstage me and that people would see what a low bar researcher I am. And, you know, I, I just that that really scared me or other physicians who said, you know, when I hear about another person getting an award, I think to myself, well, why did they get it and not me? So it keeps us living small. It keeps us from being totally present with others. It keeps us overly self-focused. When we're aware of it, we can work with it. When we're not aware of it, it can derail us. Okay. Talking about the special. And this is not so much a question, but more so something I heard Jake Gyllenhaal say. The actor Jake Gyllenhaal, ah, great actor. And I heard him being interviewed about being directed and getting reviews. And he said, look, nothing I do is precious. Give me criticism. Tell me how to do it better. Nothing I do is precious. I remind myself of that. If somebody criticizes something, just like, oh, okay, probably can learn from that. Where, of course, like maybe the first reaction is like, what are you talking about? But I loved that. Nothing I do is precious, that it is beyond reproach. And one thing that, you know, when you're talking about the docs who are just like grumbling over all of the BS is, can get into this mind state of, I will not abide this. I will not abide. Well, isn't it interesting, that whole motif, that whole identity around special, and then look at where we are in 2023 when a crazy percentage of us are employees. And employees are dispensable. Employees are told what to do by their bosses. That's the nature of the employment contract. And so when special meets employee, it's like a massive collision. Because add to what we kind of get in our upbringing, our training reinforces that we're the captain of the team. We're the all-knowing paragon, right? We're the one who always has the answer, the invulnerable head of the team. And a lot of that is really wonderful. And what do we do when all of a sudden we're not looked at as the head of the team or we're not treated with that commanding respect? It can really throw us off our game and throw us off balance. It can feel like this big dissonance around who we believe we are, which is fantastic. All physicians deserve to feel really good about themselves. But when we've 
been kind of bred and groomed from a young age and in our medical training to believe that we're sort of up on this pedestal, even though it's not the pedestal of the 1950s, it can really um, erode our sense of ourselves. I'm not here to say that mindfulness is this magic penicillin that's going to cure everything. But if we could reduce some of this stress, you know, even the 80-20 rule, if we could reduce 20% of the stress, a lot of us would be thriving in our careers. So that's really what we're talking about is kind of mm -hmm. what parts of this equation that we're in as physicians can we control and how can we do that most skillfully? You had mentioned something before about keeping yourself small. And I've never talked about this on the show. It's something that I've thought a lot about and what are my core values and how do I want to show up as a human being to the world? So my full-time job now is coaching and people find out about me through this podcast. And so in a way, this podcast, not in a way, directly, this podcast is directly connected to my business and it's awesome. So a question I had to really sit with was, do I have other coaches on this show? Because Someone may listen to that coach and say, you know, I really vibe with them. And so from a business standpoint, what am I doing there? And I would get emails from folks who would say, oh, I heard that discussion. I want to work with you. And someone say, oh, I heard this person on your podcast and now I'm working with them. At first I was like, am I being foolish? But then I thought, wait, the whole mission of this is not about me, 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 me. And if the mission is to elevate the listener and the mission is to elevate the community, then really the rising tide does bring up all ships. It was a real, I don't know if struggle is a word, but it was a real deep think about what am I doing with this thing? And if the answer is just to grow my business, then that's thinking small. Now, it still does, but if the answer is to elevate the listener and to leave the world better than I found it, then that's going to be a guiding principle. Now, granted, I'm not going to say that the two aren't in conflict from time to time, but it feels so much more expansive, expansive as a human being to be that other thing that is a vehicle for other voices, even though on one hand, maybe that will impact one aspect of my business. But you know what? What goes around comes around. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, I, and I, I don't really have a question, but I just, as you're saying, I was like, oh, I, I kind of need to just articulate this thought that you sparked. Well, thank you for sharing that because we're all doing things for gain. You know, it's it's the way it rolls. And if we can do that and lean into our why, there is a sense of expansiveness. And that's so important for physicians to really stay clear. Why did I go into this in the first place? Hopefully it wasn't just because of the money. Yeah. Hopefully it was because when I think this is true for almost every physician I have ever met, it's because we want to have an impact. We want to help people. We want to help people in their vulnerable time of need. And we know that we can do that as a physician. And when we stay firm in that why, when we step out of me, it does feel expansive. 
And part of that kind of smaller self where you started with that place of scarcity as opposed to abundance. Yes, beautiful. Scarcity and abundance. Yes. Honestly, our training cements that because ratings, rankings, and comparisons. We are groomed around ratings, rankings, and comparisons from a young age. And guess what? There's competition to be the top of the class, to be the summa cum laude, to be the speaker at the graduation. There's competition to get into the right college. Wise, you can get into the right medical school. And so in medical school in particular, all those tests that we took, all the times as we get into rounds in our clinical years and residency training, it's all about comparisons, whether they're stated or unstated. And it has a very insidious effect on us because it takes us to that place of scarcity. And we can think about that small self, that fearful self, that fearful self. I mean, I I mentioned in the book, a surgeon who said to me, you know, from a young age, I was told that I was the smart one. And that carried me into college and it carried me into medical school. But you know what, Gail, now that I'm a a surgeon, every time I go into the OR, I think this is going to be the time that people find out that I'm really not that great. I'm going to have a complication and kind of the, you know, people are going to see that I'm actually kind of a fraud, which can take us into some discussion about the imposter syndrome. But it's that comparisons, that scarcity, that looking for the external validation, which honestly, we, we, we learn to do this. It is a, a problem in the hidden curriculum that we're all trained in. And it carries over into our lives and it, it affects us. It doesn't feel good when we're in a scarcity mindset. It brings out survival brain. Our shoulders crouch in. We feel small. We don't feel loving and, and wanting to be a part of humanity. And yet it feels so much better when we step into that we, that shared humanity. The fact that everyone in healthcare is suffering these days, not just the docs. It's the nurses, it's the technicians, it's the administrators, and it is definitely the patients. But when we can really step into that shared humanity, it's a much it's a much more wholesome state of being. For any of you listening, try it out. Try out kind of being in scarcity mindset, something that may be familiar to you, and just notice what that state feels like. Be mindfully aware of what's going on for you, and then step into a moment of abundance. Maybe think about gratitude. Think about something you're grateful for. That automatically takes us to a place of abundance. And just notice what feels different in your physiology, because you'll probably notice that it's a fairly dramatic difference. Comparison is the thief of joy. It definitely is. It really is. We don't even realize how it's a part of our training, but we sit around thinking, oh, that one's smarter than me. That one has more articles than me. That one's a better researcher than me. That one's more efficient than me, more um, compassionate than I. And without even realizing it, we're selling ourselves short and we're walking around with this kind of almost like a mythos about what this other individual was like. And we're trained again to focus not on where we're doing well, but on where we're coming up short. And it's costly. You brought up the craftiest little bugger that there is. You brought up imposter syndrome, and I think this conversation cannot cannot pass without that. I mean, the inner critic whispering in our ear, you're not good enough. You're not enough. These people are going to figure it out. And the common refrain or a common refrain, I think you say this in your book, is that feeling like an imposter is just a mental story. But what if I truly am an imposter? It is a powerful mental story. We have studies now looking at the incidence of imposter syndrome in physicians. And 
It's kind of surprising to me that the numbers, while they may seem high to some, actually seem low to me. The numbers are around 30 to 40% of docs experience the imposter syndrome. Pish, and pish posh. The other 70% are just not saying that they are. Well, there you go. Because in well over 95% of the over 500 physicians that I've coached over the last 12 years, they all have imposter beliefs. I have one, oh, I'm a fake dermatologist. I don't know as much as my peers. Oh, yeah, I'm a researcher at, you know, some big Harvard or Stanford hospital, but I don't have the good ideas that everybody else has. And just wait till people find out what a fraud I am. Then I'm going to be the laughing stock of my institution. These deeply painful beliefs and then the fear that it generates. And, you know, there's something called the availability heuristic, which is basically that our minds only have access to what's going on inside of us, in a sense. And they have technicolor, 1080 pixel view of what's going on inside. And that's what's available to the mind. And so we see the shiny, polished exteriors of other people, but we see our messy, real interior <laughs> that's full of all kinds of foibles and imperfections and missteps, etc. And so the mind kind of fixates on this artificial difference between where we perceive we are and where we perceive the other person is. And social media, of course, only kind of keeps that going where we see the shiny exteriors of others, right? And we don't see the mess underneath. And so it traps us in believing that somehow we're different than others, that we're not as polished as they are. We're not as smart, let's say, or we're not as articulate or whatever the point of reference is. And we have to stop and question these imposter beliefs. Walking around like an imposter is really erosive to one's well-being. It keeps us away from seeing all the good that we're doing because we're so hyper-vigilantly focused on what our mind is telling us we're not doing as well as others. And for every person that we compare ourselves to, sadly, unless they're a total narcissist, which of course there are those in the physician population, they're comparing themselves to others as well. They're walking around feeling like a phony. We're all doing it. And so that's something that we can become more aware of. And just like other thoughts that we have, we don't have to attach to those imposter thoughts. We can just let them go naturally because all of our thoughts are transient mental events. No thought any of us has ever had has stuck around. And yet in the moment when that thought occurs and we attach to that thought, it feels like the all-powerful, the all-truth. And yet we can work with those imposter beliefs. I want to finish up with self-compassion. This is something that is so hard. I mean, it ties in with all of it. We're masters at motivating ourselves through negativity. The inner critic reigns supreme. At some point, I end up addressing this with most of my clients. I imagine you do too. We walk through awareness of the inner criticism or the imposture, acceptance to the point that there's no struggle against it, regulation if needed, you know, just, just down regulate that physiology. Recalibration, if there's a different narrative that you want to have. On one level, it's a straightforward process. But on the other hand, there's this, I'd say, insidious aspect of inner criticism where we can, we can kind of shout from the rooftops that we are okay, but this small part of us knows it's not true. And that small part is like a drop of black food coloring in a gallon of water. <laughs> and 
an incredibly hard skill to learn and embrace is self-compassion. Truly give yourself a hug. All right. Well, I guess it's figuratively. Well, I guess you could truly. Now, let's just say give yourself a hug. There's a lot of ideas on how to operationalize this. There's a lot of books on it. And this is just my personal take on it. I think that practicing mindfulness in this specific case, loving kindness or meta meditation that is wishing well to others, to the world, and also directing it at yourself is one of the most potent ways to do this. And it's not, it's not something that you can just do once and it's like a paint job on your house and it's, you're good to go. It's continual work. What's your experience with this? Think back to your training. Did you learn to be kind to yourself? Did you learn to be forgiving of human foibles? I learned to be compared to everyone else in my medical class and ranked and graded and yeah. stratified yeah. and and pimped along the way and thrown under the bus for the slightest thing that you didn't know. Yeah, this is our this is the drill in our training. So yes, and also and pimp to the point that you give the right answer and even that's not good enough. And I'm going to carry that sense of being shamed and being small, sadly, into my and give adult. it to the next generation. Oh yeah, it's it's really it's like the dysfunction of medical training all in a nutshell. So we don't learn to be compassionate to ourselves. So it is an atrophied muscle for most physicians, and certainly the hundreds of physicians that I've coached, and, and you're sharing the same thing in your experience. But the good news is that it is something that we can build. And yes, we can build it through something called a self-compassion break. And I've used this with a lot of people who come to me, a lot of physicians who come to me who can't get their charts done, for example. And I talk about one of them in the book. I call her Aisha. She sits down to chart. And what goes through her mind? Well, I'm not very good at this. I was never as good a diagnostician as my peers. I'm not as smart as other people. I'm not as kind. I'm not as efficient as they are. Then Aisha, and like many others, can't get the charts done. And what a surprise that she finds herself on Facebook, filing her nails, looking at the family shopping list, anything than facing that inner critic. And I got to tell you, for a lot of physicians struggling with charting, it's harsh self-criticism that does them in. It's also perfectionism and a lot of other things and anger, et cetera. But harsh self-criticism is very high on the list. So what I recommend is in a moment when you're sitting down to chart, whether you're an emergency physician or you've a spouse in another specialty, whatever it is, identify and recognize and validate it is hard. It's hard getting those damn charts done. It's a sucky part of the job. I think we could all agree on that. So put a hand over your heart and remind yourself that this is hard and that it's not hard because you're defective or because there's something wrong with you. It's hard because it's hard. It's hard for all physicians. So as you keep the hand over your heart to then say to yourself, may I be kind to myself when I'm going through something hard? May I bring the same compassion to myself that I bring so readily to my family and to my patients, at least on a good day? May I be patient with myself? May I forgive myself if I'm, you know, a little slow at this, that, or the other thing? So we're, we're trying to build this muscle, just like we build skeletal muscle at the gym. As you said, it takes a heck of a lot of repetition. And that's true of anything with mindfulness, because we are retraining the brain from habits that are not working for us to habits that are. And that's part of what inner criticism is all about. They're synaptic pathways that have been well cultivated over lots and lots of reps. 
So we've got to reverse that. And the self-compassion break is a really important way to do that. And honestly, for clients like Aisha, it's a game changer to getting charts done, to reducing procrastination, to making lifestyle shifts, which are hard for any of us, to being a better parent, to lots of things. It is an incredible game changer. And your listeners may be sitting there thinking, well, if I'm not hard on myself, I'm not going to be able to motivate myself. It's really powerful when we can shift from inner bully to inner ally. The moment of charting or the potential moment that you sit down to chart is so important. And I love that you brought up that inner dialogue and the hidden dialogue and the whispered dialogue that goes on there because we think that, oh, it's just my habit. It's just my process. And yeah, you can definitely break it down to you know, having an anchor for when you're going to chart. One client I work with, we broke down the micro moves that happened with patient encounters. And then, okay, well, when could charting happen? And we made this new habit, but built into that was what happens at the moment when you don't do that chart? And for emergency physicians, so I, I, I coach almost exclusively emergency acute care, critical care, and there's this pull. I sit down to chart and I look at the tracking board and I see all these other patients in the waiting room who are not even roomed yet. Or I see someone with an ankle sprain that needs to be discharged. I'm not talking about going to see a critical patient that needs to be resuscitated, right? That's going to trump all. But all of these things that I must go do now and not chart. And then at the end of my shift, I've got 30 charts to do and now I'm getting home four hours after and my spouse is pissed off and everyone's upset and I'm tired and I'm exhausted. I'm doing this for 10 years and now I got nothing left in the tank. And you get back to that moment. Think, all right, well, what, what's happening? It's like, well, I have to go see this other patients. Well, why do you think that? Because that's what I do. Well, why is that what you do? Well, I don't want the other people to think that I'm weak. Well, why would they? Because I don't want people to know that I'm not up to the task. There's myriad permutations on that, on that same thing. It's like, oh, it is this little spark of self-doubt, self-criticism and, and fear. There's the fear of failure, but even more so the fear of judgment. Or notice proof of worth, you know, seeing that patient rapidly as proof of worth. Our medical mm. training conditions us to external validation. We constantly have to prove our worth because somebody could find fault and they could throw us under the bus. A lot of times we're not even aware. I've had so many physicians say to me, wow, I didn't realize that's why it takes me so long to get my charts done. That's why I'm so behind because I want each note to prove to the reader that I'm a good physician and that I'm worthy. We don't realize that that's happening. And that's why the paying attention to what's going on in the mind is so powerful. Because if we don't diagnose it, we can't treat it. Plain and simple. All right, Gail, it has been incredible having you on the show. Always a treat. Such a pleasure talking with you today, Rob. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one -on -one coaching, to get complete show notes for this or any other episode, sign up for our newsletter, and find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Maybe not, maybe it's happening. Just head over to our website, roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.